Good morning. Good to be with you all today. Glad that you're here in our time of worship. Uh, we're into our second week of our Christmas theme called My Heart, Christ's Home, and we're looking at what it means for Christ to actually live in our hearts and how we can begin to experience the peace of his presence within us. So let me begin this morning by reading the first of two Bible passages. The first is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, starting with this verse 54. It's a brief glimpse of what it was like for Jesus to come home. Matthew chapter 13, verse 54. Jesus returned to Nazareth, his hometown, and when he taught there in the synagogue, everyone was amazed and said, where does he get his wisdom and the power to do miracles? And they scoffed. He's just a carpenter's son. We know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, all his sisters live right here among us. Where did he learn all these things? And they were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. And then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his own family. And so he did only a few miracles there because of their unbelief. And then this word from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, starting with verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let's pray together. Lord, as we think of our hearts being your home, we do pray, Lord, that you would dwell in our hearts with power, strengthening us through the presence of your Holy Spirit. May we begin to live out our lives differently because of your presence with us, Lord. May we receive you each day into our hearts in some new way, Lord, as your Spirit works within us. We just thank you for this morning and help us to listen to what your Spirit would say to us now. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, as you all know, this is the time of year when you have to be just a little bit careful about what you say. I mean, how you greet people in stores or in schools or in businesses. After all, you don't want to offend anybody, right? So here's what you need to remember, a phrase that covers all possible situations you might find yourself in. You just have to say, I wish you politically correct greetings of a wintertime nature. I mean, that should kind of do it. That covers it all. And, you know, we're just all so aware of the not-so-subtle pressure that's out there to somehow erase Jesus and the history of his birth from the celebration of Christmas. Some people call it a secular war on Christmas, and I don't know if it's a war, but there's definite hostility towards the celebration of Jesus' birth. Inevitably, there's a story in the news about somebody who's blatantly wants to drain Christmas of all its Christian content and turn it into some kind of insipid wintertime holiday. And for a preacher like me who's desperate for timely illustrations, you know, I wasn't disappointed. Just last week, uh, Lincoln Chaffee, the governor of the state of Rhode Island, decided on his own that the state would have a holiday tree instead of a Christmas tree. And he did this after the state legislature had passed a resolution specifically designating that the tree would be called a Christmas tree. So he intentionally defied his own state's lawmakers in order to advance his own personal brand of political correct secularism. A holiday tree. 
as if the words Christmas tree are somehow just so offensive to people. As one Rhode Island lawmaker uh, pointed out, they have a menorah at the state house, and no one would ever think of calling it just a holiday candlestick holder. I mean, I know secularism and commercialism have taken over Christmas. That's, that's really nothing new. More than 50 years ago, pastor and author A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, Christ came to bring peace, and we celebrate his coming by making peace impossible for six weeks of each year. He came to help the poor, and we heap gifts, gifts upon those who do not need them. So commercialism around Christmas, that, that's really nothing new. But these days, there's this pressure to delete Christmas from the holiday. And it's amplified by kind of this new message that we're hearing about the meaning of Christmas, which is you should just get out there and shop. I mean, it's now your patriotic and economic duty to get out there and spend as much money as you possibly can. Even go into debt with your credit cards, because buying is what we need to do in order to help our economy. But, but isn't debt the thing that started burying our economy? And don't your credit card fees go to the banks that were pressured by the government regulators to make all those bad loans that punched a hole in the bottom of our economic boat? So I'm just a little confused about what the actual message of Christmas is anymore. And I guess that's why I like the sign that's erected down South Street here by our brothers and sisters at OLP Roman Catholic Church that simply says, keep Christ in Christmas. And isn't it sort of sad that we even have to have a sign like that erected? But we do. I don't think there's anything new about that either. Since the day Jesus was born, he's been a controversial figure. That's why theologian N.T. Wright calls Jesus the dangerous baby. The dangerous baby. Dangerous because even at the moment in human history when Jesus was born, the local ruler, King Herod, heard about this new coming king and felt so threatened by this baby that he immediately sought to have him killed in this despicable act of genocide that we now call the slaughter of the innocents. Herod literally wanted to wipe any memory of Jesus off the face of the earth. And of course he failed. Joseph and Mary escaped to Egypt, and then after King Herod's death, they returned, and they returned to a life in their hometown of Nazareth. That's where Jesus grew up. He couldn't stay a cute little baby forever. We have to sort of allow Christ to grow up too. And when he did grow up, controversy and hostility continued to surround him. As this morning's passage from the Gospel of Matthew points out, the people who knew him best, his neighbors in Nazareth, and even some of his own family, they took offense at Jesus. And some of them didn't like him any more than King Herod did. Why? What is it that Jesus could have done that would bring out such a sour response? Well, I think it kind of comes down to that familiar phrase, you can't go home again. You can't go home again. Let me explain what I I mean. I believe it was the American novelist Thomas Wolfe who first coined that phrase, you can't go home again, in his novel that was written in 1940. The novel tells the story of a young man who writes a book that kind of is an expose on his hometown. It makes frequent references to his hometown and the people that he grew up with. Well, the residents, as you can imagine, of the hometown, they read the book and they didn't like what they saw. 
They didn't like the way that they were described or portrayed, and they think he's kind of just distorted everything about them. So the townspeople start sending him angry, nasty letters, even death threats. And even though the book is highly praised by the rest of the country for its literary qualities and all, the kind, all that kind of stuff, in his hometown, that young man is an outcast. He's persona non grata. His name is mud, or even worse than that. And so this is what the young man writes. He says, you can't go back home to your family, back home to your childhood, back home to a young man's dreams of glory and of fame, back home to places in the country, back home to old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which are changing all the time, back home to the escapes of time and memory. In other words, life is constantly in motion. The hometown isn't what it used to be, and neither are you. You can't go home again. Have any of you ever gone back to a place from your past, a place that meant a lot to you, a place where you had developed significant memories? Have you ever gone back to that place that reminds you of someone you were, but you no longer are? I think something like that happened with Jesus. He returns to Nazareth for what will be his very last visit. His hometown, this was the place where Jesus had grown up with his family for many years. He had run and played with his friends. He had listened to the stories of his people and learned about his heritage. He had seen the hurt and the pain and the disappointment there. He had seen laughter and friendship and celebration. He had experienced all the things that a boy would normally experience when he came from that little valley town of Nazareth. Nazareth Nazareth was where he learned to do many things. It's where he learned the carpenter's trade standing next to Joseph's workbench. It was where he heard rumors about his mother's story and her pregnancy before she was married to Joseph. It was there that he'd seen his brothers and sisters come into the world and to a family that shared this large, close-knit, God-fearing family. It was there that he'd felt his first stirrings as a young man, his interest in girls, but also the, the stirrings in his heart of his unique relationship with the Father that kind of grew steadily in this special self-understanding. And the synagogue, where he sat in day in and day out, the same place he attended with his family on every Sabbath, seeing many of the same people there week after week, month after month, year after year. And it was in that same synagogue that he announced his messianic mission, where he took to the, to the pulpit and opened the scriptures and began to read. And he began to read from the prophet Isaiah, and he boldly told people that he was the fulfillment of all their messianic expectations. He told them something that they weren't prepared to hear, something that put a spotlight on himself and challenged their whole view of the world and their view of themselves And at that time, they were deeply offended, so offended by his first message in Nazareth that we're told in Luke chapter 4, verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That was his first message in Nazareth. So what kind of homecoming could Jesus expect? The young man who'd left town, made a big splash all around Israel, was coming home. Jesus was now one of the most well-known figures in all of Israel. 
Large crowds followed him wherever he went. He put Nazareth on the map. I mean, if you were him, were you were you expecting you know, a marching band, a ticker tape parade down Main Street, maybe the key to the city? So he travels now 30 miles from the Sea of Galilee back home. And maybe he's thinking, you know what, things didn't go very well for me. When my brothers came to visit, that was back in Matthew 12. So maybe he's thinking, this is my chance to, to patch things up. This is a chance for me to minister the word of God in my own home, on my home turf. And so as he enters the old familiar synagogue, the one where he had listened Sabbath after Sabbath to the reading of the word of God, now the living word of God attempts one final time to reach the people who are nearest and dearest to him with this good news about his kingdom. And he does so from the perspective that just like the last time, they will probably see him as the carpenter's son and not the Messiah. But he knows he still has to try. The second half of verse 54 says that his hometown were amazed. But they weren't amazed in the positive sense of the term. They explode in a flurry of questions. Where did this guy get this wisdom? What makes him think he can do a better job than than our respected rabbis? Since when does this untrained common man become the Messiah? Same Jesus was faced with the same questions in other places in the Gospels. Like in John chapter 7, verse 15, it says, Where did this man get these things without having studied? And Jesus answered that question My teaching is not my own, it comes from him who sent me. But before he can even answer here in Nazareth, he's pummeled with even more questions. Where did he get these miraculous powers? In the 25 years or so that he lived here, do you ever remember him doing anything miraculous? And isn't this the carpenter's son? He's a product of the small town just like us. How can a local yokel from Nazareth be the Messiah? There's no way. So in verse 57 it says, they took offense at him. And in the Greek it's even more derogatory than than it is in English. They were definitely PO'd. Well, what's the main thing that got them upset? What's the main thing that brought out this incredible resistance to Jesus? I think it's one simple word. Control. Control. You see, like us, The people in Nazareth were primarily motivated by self-interest. And they thought about God and God's Messiah. When they thought about that, they expected and they dreamed of a God who would do what they wanted. They wanted freedom and they wanted a Messiah who was supposed to kick the Romans out of Palestine. They wanted peace. They wanted success. They wanted prosperity. They wanted love and health and meaning and all the things that people want. They wanted all their needs met. And they wanted to control how God was going to do all that. And so what they really wanted was a God who was their puppet. A puppet so that they could pull the strings and God would sort of just dance to their control. And don't we sort of have the same issues? We want God as a part of our lives. But we want to call the shots. We want a God who will give us what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. We want God in our lives. But we want a God our way. And guess what? Jesus can meet all of our needs. But he doesn't ever do it the way we expect or want. 
And so when our well-laid plans don't pan out the way we thought they should, who gets the blame? It's God. We say, Lord, if you were really up there, you would have helped me find a better job. You would have helped me make my marriage better. You would have helped me. You would have done this. And so God gets the blame because he doesn't act the way we expect him to. But Jesus isn't obligated to give us what we want when we want it. When we come to Christ, we have to understand he is beyond our control. When we talk about my heart, Christ's home, when we talk about Jesus living in our lives, we have to realize he comes to renovate. He doesn't just move in and kind of take the guest suite. He comes to renovate the interior of our lives. He comes to rebuild. Here's how C.S. Lewis puts it in his classic book, Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house and God comes to rebuild that house. At first, you, you, perhaps you understand that what he's doing and he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking about the house in a way that hurts and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to have just a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. A palace where he intends to come and live in it himself. Jesus comes into our hearts to renovate. And that may mean he takes us all the way down to the foundation. There are things he's got to tear out. There's wiring in us that's not working. In fact, it's probably dangerous, and he's got to pull it out and rewire us. There's the concrete of pride that's got to get busted up. There are values and and beliefs that are like flimsy walls that we've relied on. And he says, no, these walls have to be replaced there are ethics and, and behaviors and actions and attitudes that are, that are like plumbing that are just not up to his high standards and code. And as he rebuilds, we find that he can meet all our needs, but he does it in his way. True riches may come through an awareness of your spiritual poverty. True strength may not come through conquest, but it might come through surrender. True love might happen not by holding on, but by letting go. True peace may come not through the absence of problems, but by stepping into those same problems with a confident assurance of his presence. Jesus comes to renovate. Jesus grew up. He became, of all things, a carpenter. He was familiar with all the tools of his day for physical construction. And he knows what to do to rebuild our lives now from the inside out if we let him. If we let him. The people in Nazareth resisted. And Jesus didn't do much there. The text says that he didn't do many miracles because of the resistance and the unbelief that he faced. Does he face resistance in your heart? Does he face resistance in you? Does he encounter opposition from your pride, your distraction, your need to control? 
Do you resist his renovation of your life? Are you willing to actually let God change you? Or do you hide behind all your excuses? Do you resist by saying, well, that's just the way I am? Well, it's time to change that story. It's time to say, that's just the way I am, apart from Jesus Christ. But with Christ, I can be a new creation. Because he is building something different within me. He's building a palace where he will reside. So be open. Be open this Christmas season. Be open to who Jesus really is. Not a Messiah that you can control. Not a puppet that does whatever you want. But the God of all who seeks our surrender. We have to move beyond you know, all the decorations to real sincere dedication. Beyond all the sentimentality of Christmas to a sense of true surrender. Are we giving Jesus the warm reception he deserves as we invite him into our homes? Just ask, what is it that that you are lacking in your life? Where is it that you feel powerless or defeated? If you are like me, you can honestly and humbly look at this story the story and kind of pray the same kind of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that my heart can be your home. And I'm sorry that I've become so full of myself that I cannot see you clearly and cannot hear you plainly. I'm sorry that I've allowed myself to become so lackadaisical about my time with you in prayer, my time in personal worship, that there's no real fire in our relationship right now. I'm sorry that I've allowed my sinful nature to get the best of me and to gain control of certain areas of my life. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry that I'm so filled with pride that I can't see even how self-righteous I am and how my heart has become hardened against your truth. Lord Jesus, forgive my insensitivity to your mercy and to the grace, to the things that cost you everything to be able to offer them to me. Break my heart over the resistance that I put in your way as yours was broken that day in Nazareth when those you knew best would not allow you to transform their lives. I admit, I am in need of renovation. Can you pray that kind of prayer? I admit that I need forgiveness. I admit that I'm in need of being tenderized and sometimes it takes a sledgehammer to do it. I need to be humbled and renewed to the presence of your peace that you died to give me. Can we pray that kind of prayer together this Christmas? Jesus, renovate my heart. And it's in his name that we do pray. Amen.